fuck. Oh, well, it shows that it's recording. <laughs> Does it show recording? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, very good. Welcome back, everybody, to uh, to Trad Men. What's going on, Jace? Not much, Mark. How are you doing? Man, I uh, I had a great week, um, and uh, I, we, we originally wanted to record this episode yesterday uh, because yesterday was, in fact, the Feast of Our Lady of Lourdes. Uh, but we had Knights of Columbus, so we had to go do that instead. And so uh, we thought we would take this opportunity to talk about um, probably uh, one of the most interesting and, um, it, well, apparitions of Our Lady. Interesting just because, you know, again, just like Fatima, it happens in the modern era. Uh, it's it's incredibly well documented. There's a lot of... Uh, uh, evidence that just can't be easily, you know, well, those were people who lived 400 years ago. Everybody thinks they saw the Virgin Mary. You yeah. can't just dismiss it quite like that. So um, before we, we begin, obviously, we want to begin in prayer. And Jace, you said you found a very interesting prayer to Our Lady of Lourdes. And so we invite everybody to to join along with us. And uh, with that being said, Jason, if you want to lead us. Okay. In the name of Patris, et Filii, Spiritus Sancto. Amen. Ever Immaculate Virgin, Mother of Mercy, Health of the Sick, Refuge of Sinners, Comforter of the Afflicted, You know my wants, my troubles, my sufferings. Look with mercy on me. By appearing in the Grotto of Lords, you were pleased to make it a privileged sanctuary, whence you dispense your favors. And already many sufferers have obtained the cure for their infirmities, both spiritual and corporal. I come, therefore, with complete confidence to employ your maternal intercession. Obtain, O loving Mother, the grant of my request. Through gratitude for your favors, I will endeavor to imitate your virtues, that I may one day share with your glory. Amen. In nomine Patris et Filii Spiritui Sancti. Amen. That's a beautiful prayer, Jace. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, like I said, I came across it not too long ago, and I said that might be the perfect prayer for this episode. Um, I, I believe, I believe you were correct. <laughs> and like you said, we were, we were going to do it yesterday, but we, we had a, a night's meeting. And I just want to say, you know, our, our uh, co-host here, Mark, is the what was it called? Not the Grand Knight, the Deputy Grand Knight, and at our council, and he is doing a wonderful job. Of, of being well, every grand night, <laughs> I stand. I stand on the shoulders of giants. Uh, we have we've got a great council. We do. Uh, you know that the Knights of Columbus is a it just generally as an organization is something I think. And you know, Jason, I don't presume to speak for you, but it's something that I think we both really believe in. Um, the the work that they have done throughout the years and continue to do, particularly in the pro life ministry, um, and the things that. Uh, they do in raising money for priests and the support that they've given pr for priests and religious over the years, uh, I think is an invaluable service to the church. So if you are a practicing man, uh, 18 years or older, um, I urge you to at least investigate uh, your local Knights of Columbus council and, and see if it's something that you're called to, because uh, it's it's definitely an organization I really believe in. Yeah. And, and you know, a lot of people seem to have this idea that it's kind of a old man's club. You know, if you're retired, you you go to Knights of Columbus. That's that's not the case, especially for any young guys out there listening. Our our council, I think, has a a good mix of young and old, and young and old are all active, even even from the retired to the ones that are that are working. So yes, definitely get involved. 
Yeah, we definitely, we had a guy join the council yesterday and I'm, man, he, he's got to be 23, 24 years old, if that. Um, so there's a lot of young guys there and they bring a lot to the table. Um, and of course, as always, we draw from the wisdom of the past. So it's not like, you know, we just put the old guys out to sea or anything like that, right. but, um, it's it's yeah it's a really great organization. I firmly believe in it. So if uh, if you feel like that's something you're called to, uh, definitely feel you know I would encourage you to contact the knights at your parish and um, see about getting involved. I know we've got an episode to do tonight, but before we get started, you know uh, you've heard of uh, pints with Aquinas. Well, it's gonna be it's gonna be pints with Tradmen at least over here. <laughs> I've got a. Uh, I've got a nice Carbach Brewery Love Street uh, over here, so I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, nurse that uh, while we uh, while we have a an edifying discussion. Um, Jace, this this episode was kind of your idea, and I think it was a really good one um, because growing up, I did not know a lot about the apparitions at Lourdes in particular. I saw the movie The Song of Bernadette. Mm-hmm. Um, which was released in 1941. And yes, if you want to look at uh, how bad the culture has gotten, go back and look at the films Hollywood made in 1941 and then look at the films that they're making today. In 1941, they made a song about Our Lady of... They made a, uh, a film about Our Lady of Lords and St. Bernadette's Subaru. And it's a beautiful film. Um, but that's really all I knew about Our Lady of Lords. Um, I, I, I didn't have a huge devotion to it per se, Jason, was was Our Lady of Lourdes a part of your uh, daily or or spiritual devotions? No, it it hasn't been, and it and it wasn't. You know, I've I've mentioned before in previous episodes how important Our Lady of Fatima was to me in my conversion. But Our Lady of Lourdes, I, I knew the general gist of of what happened, but I I didn't know the details. I didn't have any particular devotions, but with this. Uh, you know the feast of Our Lady of Lords coming up. I thought it would be a good opportunity to to jump into the topic and to get better acquainted with this uh, or with these apparitions because there was eighteen total from eighteen fifty eight, and I don't remember when the last apparition was. It was uh, well, it was eighteen fifty eight. I guess it was July six, eighteen fifty eight was the last, and the first was in February of that year. Yeah, um, the eighteen in total, right? Right, right. And yeah. uh, let me ask you this. As you looked into it, I know you've mentioned in, in a previous episode that I don't, maybe skeptical is not the right word, but that you've always had some reservations in the, in the apparitions. Uh, looking into this one uh, more, ha- has that changed your feeling at least on this apparition or apparitions in whole, or are you still kind of in the same, the same mindset? I, I, I can... I can tell you that you were definitely the guy who invited me to be a little bit more open to apparitions. And and it's not, I, I I will admit that I just didn't understand the phenomenon itself. That being said, I've, I've always uh, admitted that I don't know everything. And just because I don't understand something doesn't mean it, it's, it doesn't exist or isn't happening. Right. Uh, I, I don't understand most of theoretical physics. Uh, it <laughs> it doesn't mean that physics isn't real or that gravity is not existent. So um, I, I chalk most of it up to a lack of understanding on my part of exactly what it is that's happening in apparitions. I will say getting into investigating Our Lady of Lourdes and, of course, Fatima, because, you know, there's a temptation to think that, well, people who lived 
before the modern age. And again, this is an, I, I, even though I don't consider myself a modernist, I live in a modernist infected world. And so part of my thinking, I think kind of is bent in that direction that people who lived before the scientific age were just sort of superstitious and gullible. So they would, they would just interpret any phenomenon that they didn't quite understand as, well, that's an apparition or, or, or something magical or something like that. Right. I think that is a very, um, I don't think that's a correct way to interpret people who lived in ancient times, um, number one. But number two, these two apparitions, they happened in the modern age. I mean, 1858 is not, you know, four or 500 years ago, we've been doing science, particularly in France, where we've already had a secular, a, a radically secular revolution that was, you know, uh, that was very, very anti-clerical and very anti-Catholic. Um, you can't explain this away as, well, these are just superstitious people living at a superstitious place at a superstitious time. Right. And so that's really something that I've become much more cognizant of is reading the accounts of these apparitions. You can't just dismiss this as something like that. And and as you study these apparitions more, it becomes more evident. There's this there's this idea uh, with myself when I was growing up in the groups, you know, that I that I associated with this idea that the Catholic Church basically just approved and believed anything, right? But when you right. but when you actually get in to the apparitions, you start finding out that, like, like just with the miracles of Our Lady of Lords, there was, there were seventy uh, cases that they've affirmed have been uh, miraculously cured, right, by the waters of Lords. I think the last one was approved in two thousand eighteen, something like that. Um, you know, uh, uh, Bernadette, she she had a lot of issues with, with her priest not believing her, with of course the town because they ended up least taking her into custody for a short period of time and the church is always starts out it seems like reading this in Fatima is skeptical you know they they do if not downright hostile yes yes <laughs> and they do thorough investigations it's not like they say oh well we got one other witness great you know everything's good they do uh, if you actually look into what it takes to approve for the church to approve these apparitions and also the miracles associated with uh, some of these apparitions, it's it it's pretty thorough, and actually, it seems like it's it's more thorough than a lot of things that we, uh, you know, that we believe that had less evidence or less well, there, uh, unexplainable phenomena. There was uh, there's an old saying um, as a parish priest. There's two people you don't ever want to see appear in your parish, and that's the diocesan bishop and the Blessed Virgin Mary. <laughs> so they, they, they're just, they're very rarely, um, does it ever come out good for the, for the visionary, um, especially not in the long, you know, in the long run, you know, it, it, that visionary is vindicated, you know, so, so right. in, in the event of Blessed Juan Diego, for example, but you know, in the, in the short term, you know, and I've even said this, uh, I hope God never gives me anything like the stigmata or an apparition because it would be wasted. Cause I don't think I would have the stones to tell anybody. I think I would be too confused and maybe, and, and definitely scared of what's going to happen to me after you start saying that. So it, it's definitely not something that benefits 
the person who's saying that they're seeing these things. Yeah, the people that see the vision seem to suffer quite a bit trying to to tell people about you know what Our Lady wants or to build maybe to build a chapel to do penance. Um, they're accused of being crazy, of being liars, of uh, in some of these cases of just being silly, dumb little kids or whatever. And mm-hmm. and nobody believes them for the longest time. You know they they'll get taken into custody by by the authorities and um you know and as a kid that has to be terrifying when you're a young kid in the case of Our Lady of Lords and Fatima you have the authorities come and question you telling you what you saw wasn't right but they these visionaries had the courage to stand up and say I know what I saw yeah uh, and I, what's interesting about um Lords and I guess now's as good a time to get into sort of the uh the nitty-gritty as anything is Bernadette is this this country girl living uh, in in France, and um, Lourdes is kind of a backwater of a place. Not not a lot of things going on in that area. She doesn't come back, and she's out playing one day, if I'm correct, or is she was she working gathering uh, firewood? She was, she was gathering firewood, firewood, right? Yeah, and um, she has this experience. She describes. Um, I saw a lady. She doesn't come back and say, I saw the Virgin Mary. I saw the mother of God. I saw, you know, she just says, I saw a lady. And so that's very interesting to me. If she's out to become a visionary, she doesn't start off the right way. I don't think, (laughs) um, what did, now let's see, what does the, what does the lady ask her to do? Yeah. And it wasn't until the 16th vision that she gets any type of, I, gets the lady to identify in some way who she is. I mean, it's it's towards the end that 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 uh, Bernadette gets this. Yeah, get and actually, she said what um, what Our Lady says to her. Now, before we get into that, let's get a little bit more into the. Uh, I want to get a little bit more into the backstory, um, and I have the some of the facts here pulled up, but I wanted to. Get everything right. The first appearance happens on February the 11th on a Thursday in 1858. It's a week before Lent. Um, and for, Bernadette Subaru is 14 years old. She's out gathering firewood uh, with her sister Tanette and a friend at the Grotto of Massaville. Or I, and I don't speak French, so uh, if any uh, French people are listening to this, I apologize for everything that's going to happen in this episode. Um, she reportedly has the first of 18 visions that she she termed a small young lady, um, not in French, but in the regional dialect, which is um, Occitan, I think. Is that what it's called? Sounds, yeah, um, sounds, see, that's yeah, about as good as I could say. Sounds about right. She's standing in the, in the niche in the rock, and her sister and the friends stated that they didn't see anything. Um, so on realizing that she's alone and that her companions don't see this thing, uh, Subaru asked her sister not to tell anybody what happened. Tanette is unable to keep her mouth shut and tells her mother, Louise Subaru, um, because the mother suspected the children were lying. Both girls received a beating. Yes, that's what parents did back in the day. They did beat their children. <laughs> and Subaru is forbidden to return to the grotto ever again. Now, that would be enough for me, I think. I think I... <laughs> yeah. You know, um, if I were making this up, I would have been like, yeah, let's go make up a better story. Some one, one that doesn't get me beat by my mother. Um, 
And so the next apparition doesn't happen for a few more days. I think on the second of the fourteenth. Fourteenth. The second, the fourteenth of February. Yeah. Um, So before we go to fourteenth of February, I want to talk about eleventh February. Okay, Jace, there you are. You're out in the woods now, gathering firewood. Let's make it a little more applicable to your situation. You're on a hunting trip. (laughs) I I wish that was more applicable. Uh, you're, you're out on a hog hunting trip with your best buddy, Mark, and, um, you, you, this, this exact situation happens to you. How do you process something like that? I mean, what would be your first, what'd be the first thing you would do? Um, I don't even know that I have an answer for you. I mean, I, I, I guess that's kind of a cop out answer, but I just can't. No, it's I can't. It's quite I, profound. I can't fathom how, what, what I would do. It'd be one of those situations, like they say, you you can't rightly say how you would react or what you would do. You know, the the pious part of you would like to say, oh, you know, I I I would notice this was something holy, or, or this lady was holy, and I would do everything she said with great gusto and great courage. But more than likely, you, I, I would think I would be confused. I would be worried. And I don't, like you said earlier, I don't know that I would have the courage to say, I'm going to tell people about this, especially if I know nobody else saw it but me. And, and I believe through the whole, the whole apparitions, isn't she, I don't think anybody else ever saw the lady or, or I don't, saw our lady. I don't lady. think so either. I don't think so either. So, um, so it's, you know. Contra- but I like to try and. Yeah, I, I like to try and put myself in the in the in the place of Saint Bernard's Subaru because, you know, and I've we talked about this before. Everybody says, "Why, if God wants to talk to me, why doesn't He just, you know, where's my, where's my burning bush? I want the burning bush. You don't want the burning bush. Trust me. You you say you want that, but you know, look back on everybody who God has communicated to that way. The very first thing that they always say is don't be afraid. There's a reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and, and in fact, uh, the resurrection, I was reading the resurrection account recently in the gospels. And the very first thing that the angel says to the women, don't be afraid. Right. Because it's gotta be terrifying. It's gotta be terrifying to have something like this happen. But anyway, um, well, so. well, I if if we're reading it right, uh, Bernadette was a young lady, and she describes the the lady that she saw as young, maybe no taller than she was, and I believe she was like four foot seven, four foot eleven. She was, you know, not the because of her condition and life and all that. She being poor, and she was probably malnourished she wasn't in great health so she didn't have a you know a strong structure i guess a tall structure so she describes people were very people were a lot smaller back in those days yeah and so 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 she describes the lady as something that she can relate to but very beautiful wearing a, a a white i guess a white dress or she was wearing yeah a white dress with blue uh you know blue uh sash or whatever you call right. it with roses on her feet. So our, like you said, when we read in the Old Testament accounts of God coming to people, or even sending His angels to send a message, people are always almost terrified. And and our beautiful lady makes an appearance to a young girl, and the girl is is not scared, but she's 
mesmerized. She's taken in. She's just in awe of this lady she's seeing. It, yeah, it, it's definitely described as another worldly experience. And, and I think the second apparition, though, also speaks to what some of my initial concerns would be if something like this happened to me. <laughs> now, according to, uh, to, um, to Bernadette Subaru's uh, testimony herself on the 14th of February, and I quote, The second time was the following Sunday. I went back there because I felt myself interiorly impelled. Um, my mother had forbidden me to go after high mass. The two other girls and myself went to ask my mother again. She did not want to let us go. She said that she was afraid that if I should fall in the water, uh, she was afraid that I would not be back for Vespers. I promised that I would. Then she gave me permission to go. I went to the parish church to get a little bottle of holy water to throw over the vision. If I were to see her at the grotto, when we arrived, we took our rosaries and we knelt to say them. I had hardly finished the first decade when I saw the same lady. Then I started to throw holy water in her direction at the same time. I said that if she came from God, she was to stay, but if not, she must go. She started to smile and bowed, and the more I sprinkled her with the holy water, the more she smiled and bowed her head, and the more I saw her make signs. Then I went to on saying my rosary. When I had finished it, she disappeared, and we came back to Vespers. That's ex that. See, that is this really of God? What if this is the devil? Well, I mean, well, it's a, that's a good point because it reminds me of St. Paul writing to the Corinthians. I believe it's the second, uh, um, second letter to the Corinthians. He writes that Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. Right. So, so, and, so it's not wrong to say, okay, let me make sure that this is a, a good, you know, apparition and not, not I, I don't have the the devil trying to, or one of his minions trying to deceive me here. Yeah. And I mean, she even, the, the idea that she, her first, uh, uh, she's not going around telling everybody right now, I've met the Virgin Mary, you know, listen to me. I'm important. I met the Virgin Mary. Yeah, she didn't even know who the lady she, is. She doesn't know who the lady is. Uh, at least if she does, that's not how she's describing her, but she goes, she's going to the parish church to get holy water to throw on this thing to see if this is, you know what? So that that lets me know. Well, I don't know. It doesn't prove anything, I guess, but it it certainly is like, yeah, that's what I would do. Yeah. So it's a it's a very believable story up to this point in terms of how her behavior is in in light of these experiences that she's having. Right. Um, she goes on to have a, you know a third appearance on the eighteenth of February. Uh, and that's when the apparition speaks for the first time. Um, and before this, its identity was a matter of considerable speculation. Um, and on hearing Subaru's description, some of the pious, more pious villagers um, wanted to, you know, that they were of the belief that it was the Virgin Mary. But um, I'm trying to think of where the, uh, did I have... Okay, she spoke to her in Oxatian. I believe that's how you say it. The regional language that Bernadette, whose French was poor, used, the apparition used a remarkably formal form of the language in her request. Would you have the goodness to come here for 15 days? I'm not going to read it in Oxatian, and I'm definitely not going to read it in French. Uh, the significance of the politeness is not lost on the observers, as it would be unusual for anyone to adopt this formal form of address when speaking to a penniless working class peasant girl such as Bernadette. So that's kind of interesting. It doesn't 
it speaks in Bernadette's language, but it doesn't speak in Bernadette's, you know, dialect, I guess. And, and because there's a different class, you know, like in, like in England, there, there's the King's English and then there's Cockney English, which is yeah. like a working class type of an English. So, um, that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, but, uh, would you have the goodness to come here for 15 days? And so she does, um, over the 15 days, more and more people begin to come with her, um, to, to the, to, to the grotto. Um, on the sixth appearance on the 21st of February, the apparition says to her, you will pray to God for sinners. Um, on the, uh, on the 23rd, uh, what's, uh, Bernadette Subaru receives a secret but never reveals the secret to anybody. Well, that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, and and, and before we get too further down, uh, too much further down on these apparitions, just oh, we lost Jace. J- Jason, you there? Okay, stick with us, folks. We're gonna get Jason back here. Hang on. <laughs> Yeah, sorry there about that. I, I don't know what happened. Uh, um, no problem. <laughs> but but what I was saying is going back to that third apparition. Let me let me pull it back up here so I can make sure I say it right. Um, this is the first time where she tries to find out the lady's name, and the lady doesn't doesn't give her the name, uh, but does tell her, "I do not promise to make you happy in this world, but in the other." You know, then ask her if she'll be kind enough to come here. Uh, you know, some uh, in the following following days. Oh, I missed that. I missed yeah, that so, part. Okay. So, um, at this point, again, she she's trying to figure out who this lady is, and it and it goes back to what we said earlier. She doesn't really know who the lady is, but but mm-hmm. um, but she keeps coming back to these to these apparitions as the lady requested and does the rosary with her and and eventually brings candles or bless candles and. So anyway, uh, but back to where you were on the what were you on the twenty third? Um, uh, I believe I was. Yeah, I was on the twenty third. That um, Saint Saint Subaru says that the lady gives her a secret, tells her a secret which is only for her, and the secret is never really revealed to anybody. And I've always always been very curious. And um, oh <laughs> I yeah, what yeah, that and is. I hope maybe we find yeah. Out there's the there's a secret, but there's also I believe there was a. A prayer that Our Lady gave Bernadette, but that nobody ever knew what that prayer was. That Bernadette just kept that prayer to herself. That's that's amazing. Um, uh, yeah. Now uh, on the on the twenty now on the eighth appearance, the twenty fourth of February, there's about two hundred and fifty people present in the grotto, and the message of the lady is penance, penance, penance. Pray to God for sinners. Kiss the ground as an act of penance for sinners. One of the things I've noticed about apparitions in the modern era, um, they seem to, Our Lady is very concerned about um, penance and, and, and praying for sinners, doing penance, because I always notice that these, which is very interesting to me, seem to come on the cusp of really destructive wars. Now, a lot of people don't, think about this but historians have called the american civil war the first modern war 
it was the first war where hundreds of thousands of people died in the war. You know, before war has been going on as long as human beings have, you know, since mm-hmm. Cain murdered Abel. But uh, usually in a war, maybe a, t- a thousand, maybe 10,000 people would die, maybe 20,000 in the whole war, okay? The American Civil War was the first war where 700,000 people were killed. I think at, I think at the Battle of... Uh, at the Battle of Shiloh, I think 7,000 Americans were killed in 20 minutes. This apparition happens in 1858. Now, I'm not connecting this to the American Civil War, but I am saying that um, with this apparition and, of course, with Fatima happening during the First World War, um, there seems to be a connection between doing penance and avoiding this, this really destructive modern age that we're about I to enter I hadn't thought into. about the connecting that with... With the Civil War and, and the way you're talking, that's very interesting. Good, something to think about. I mean, <laughs> I, I I never made that connection. I mean, war yeah. war after, yeah, war after the American Civil War was a, an incredibly destructive, and horrible and barbarous thing. I mean, just look at the first, the, the at the two world wars that came um, largely. Um, you know, a lot of the tactics and the weaponry that was used in the First World War uh, comes out of inventions that began during the Civil War, like the the, the yeah. machine gun, um, the submarine, uh, you know, a lot of the, uh, not necessarily gas attacks, but in terms of, uh, you know, high-powered artillery that's in, designed to maim and yeah, destroy and of, things like that. It was a really yeah, a lot of carnage war. with minimal effort. Indeed, indeed. And I, I, I noticed that Our Lady's apparitions, the two famous ones, obviously, Lourdes and, um, and, and Fatima, seem to happen on the cusp of these really destructive periods of, of war. Um, and I'm, I wonder if there's a connection. No, I, that, that's a, an interesting observation there. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you got a book idea. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe. But she definitely is concerned about penance and praying for sinners. Um, and then, um, on the, on the ninth appearance, which is the very next day, uh, this is a, this is quoting again from St. Bernadette Subaru. The lady told her that she should go and drink the fountain and wash herself. Seeing no fountain, I went to drink at the, at the cave. She said it was not there. She pointed with her finger that she was to go in under the rock. Uh, she went in, she found a puddle of water, which was more like mud and the quantity was so small that she could hardly gather a little in the hollow of her hand nevertheless she obeyed and started scratching the ground after doing that she was able to take some the water was so dirty that three times she threw it away the fourth time she was able to drink it uh she made her eat grass growing in the same place where the she had drunk once only she did not know why then the vision disappeared and she went home interesting that's very that's um that's you, what do you think of you, that one, Jace? You know what I find interesting about this? I had read. I'm trying to find it. I, I may not have it on here, but um, I had read some that there had, of course, been testing done on the water there at Lords, and that the water was basically uh, the 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 person that was doing the testing described it as, as pure water, like it's basically you you know there's no filter or anything like that. It's just pure uh, water that. Uh, that just kind of makes me think, you know, God, God only gives us 
or, or wants to give us the best, right? He, he wants the best for us. And uh, Our Lady come in and telling her to drink this water that wasn't there. Then all of a sudden, a little bit comes out. It's muddy. And then now you have this water that is described by this guy as pure. Um, and, and it wasn't, you know, it's been tested in this, well, I say this century, in the, in the 20th century. Um, so it's not not that far off from its from its testing I, I can't find where it is though but anyway i just thought that was interesting and i think and i think now is a good time we should get into some of the miracles we're talking about the water um yeah and i an analysis of the water that was commissioned by anselm uh lacad in 1858 uh, was conducted by a professor in Toulouse who determined that the water was potable and it can it contained the following oxygen nitrogen that might have been the, acid, that might have been the, of, the one I saw anyway sorry go ahead no that's okay um essentially the water is quite pure and inert that's it yeah um, inert that's the word that was too yeah, big of a and, word for me to remember <laughs> yeah and and it it's it, it had very uh a lot of good mineral yeah. uh, properties to it but what's what's interesting to me is that there are 70 there are if you go to lords and i have not been but i have seen obviously the the pictures of the crutches and the and the wheelchairs that people i mean i get emotional just talking about this because this is this is powerful to me um people people came there with those crutches and left them there because they didn't need them anymore now there's 70 cases only 70 that there, there's a there's a center there at Lourdes that investigates these right. miracles. Okay, there are and they put them through quite a rigorous scientific process. Now there have been thousands of these cases, but there are only seventy that this particular center is willing to say are without explanation. That means to me, at least that means to me, they're putting these through a pretty rigorous process of elimination if if you've eliminated most of these situations as well we can't say what really happened here and you only keep 70 cases that you're you're you just simply don't have an explanation for that's that's pretty remarkable in my right. estimation yeah and that's what i was saying earlier they're just not somebody's not just walking up saying oh it cured this or that and and then they're adding it to the list of miraculous healings um, I, I, I think about people, I knew a guy, uh, that I went to law school with who, um, he was wheelchair bound, uh, motor chair. Actually, he had, he had incredibly limited use of, uh, his arms and legs, um, smart guy and, and was there every day, never missed a day. Um, he, he made it very difficult for you to, uh, sleep in and not go to the gym uh, because it would be nicer if you just laid in bed. This guy, he was a soldier. He made you, he made you want to, okay, if that guy can get up and go to school every day, yeah. I can get up and go <laughs> to the gym every day. Um, but just think about what it's like for somebody like that to, to live with those kinds of challenges. And then one day you go to Lords and you, you, for whatever reason, okay, I maybe, <laughs> If you don't want to believe that Our Lady uh, is working miracles, that's fine. But you got to explain this some other kind of way. And for whatever reason, 
you you don't need that wheelchair anymore. That's got to be an amazing, just incredible thing to witness, to bear witness to, I think. Uh, And I think that it speaks to something special about Lourdes that you can't just easily dismiss. But um, these apparitions go on for, for quite a while. Uh, there's one here that I wanted to talk about. Um, on the, This is the 17th apparition. This is in April of 1858. Uh, Dr. Pierre-Romain Dosus, the town physician, uh, watches the apparition. He's a very skeptical person. Um, he believed that uh, Bernadette Subaru was... He knew her well. He believed she was in her right mind, but was not ready to... Uh, come to the conclusion that what was happening here was what she was saying it was. He reports, and I quote, Bernadette seemed to be even more absorbed than usual in the appearance upon which her gaze was riveted. I witnessed, as did also everyone else there present, the fact which I am about to narrate. She was on her knees, saying with fervent devotion the prayers of her rosary, which she held in her left hand, while her right hand was a large blessed candle. All right. The child was just beginning to make the usual ascent on her on her knees when suddenly she stopped and, her right hand joining her left, the flame of the big candle passed between the fingers of the latter. Though, uh, though fanned by a fairly strong breeze, the flame produced no effect upon the skin which it was touching. Astonished at this strange fact, I forbade anyone there to interfere, and taking my watch in my hand, I studied the phenomenon attentively for a quarter of an hour. At the end of this time, Bernadette, still in her ecstasy, advanced to the upper part of the grotto, separating her hands. The flame thus ceased to touch her left hand. Bernadette finished her prayer, and the splendor of the transfiguration left her face. She rose and was about to quit the grotto when I asked her to show me the left hand. I examined it most carefully, but could not find the least trace of burning anywhere upon it. Then I asked the person who was holding the the candle to light it again and give it to me. Uh, I put it several times in succession under Bernadette's left hand, but she drew away saying quickly saying, you are burning me. I record this fact just as I have seen it without attempting to explain it. Many persons who were there present at the time can confirm what I have said. Now, if you're going to make up a story, you do not get a doctor who can list other people who anybody can go and talk to. And, you know, uh, that's quite a riveting document documentation of that phenomenon. Would you oh, agree? yeah, definitely. I just, uh, you know, one of the things is, is that when we hear the story of, let's say, Juan Diego, or we hear the story of uh, uh, St. Catherine Labore. We want to say, yeah, but there's got to be a scientific explanation to that. No, nobody's ever around when the apparition happened, so we don't know what they really saw. Well, here you have a physician, a scientist, who is there documenting what he has seen. He does not attempt to explain it, but he writes this out. You know, I, I write out affidavits for a living. An affidavit is a sworn statement, and it it reads just like this. You testify basically a narration of what you saw without a lot of interpretation. You know, you just uh, said that this reads just like a legal affidavit to me. And it's a very, um, I don't know. It commands attention. 
I'll say that. It commands attention. The one that kind of stood out to me was actually the first miraculous healing that, that, that really stands out because you, you mentioned that a lot of times these things are done in secret or nobody sees it. So rightfully so, right. people are typically skeptical of these, these things, right? But right. uh, the the first miracle on March first, it was a lady in front of fifteen hundred people who had paralyzed or mostly paralyzed her right arm, right hand, and and out of those, and I don't believe she lived that far from Lords. So I imagine out of those fifteen hundred people, some of them probably knew this lady. Her name is uh, Catherine Latipe, something like that. But anyway, she um, she goes to the grotto puts her hand in the in the waters or in the spring at Lords and her hand when she pulls out her hands heal she has all her movement and all that and you had you know 1500 people um see this now I, I I do know you have situations today like your Benny hens and stuff like that where somebody will come up in a wheelchair but it's all kind of staged right those people right are exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> I hate to tell you that if you, if people don't know, yeah, uh, you know you know who Jim Jones was, the the Jonestown oh, the leader Kool-Aid? who, mur- yeah, yeah, that who murdered nine hundred people in in in, a, in Guyana. A lot of people think those people committed suicide. Well, they were forced to drink that Kool Aid by armed guards. That 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 ain't suicide well, to me. But okay. But anyway, yeah, he 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 was into uh, uh, heal faith yeah. healings and everything. But he hired yeah, yeah, all those and- people. He hired all but when you read the story of the uh, of what happened here with uh Catherine and her healing you don't it's not like she knew these people and all that like you mentioned this is back back in the 18 back in the 1800s you didn't have mass media like we do today you a lot of these people were kind of secluded and and you had you had a bunch of people watch this lady come up and, and I doubt 14 year old Bernadette had had time to plan with this lady a miraculous healing because I doubt uh, Saint Bernadette even would ever even think of doing something like that, right? Like, oh well, let's let's trick these people into b- uh, believe what I'm saying. No, this lady comes from a town. Let me see, it's, there it is, seven kilometers away. She she gets up at three in the morning with her family, goes there, and then dips her hand in this water and is in his hill. There was. From all accounts, there was no time for a setup, so that kind of that kind of stood out to me as well because I grew up very skeptical of these type of uh, of these type of things. I, I mean, I'm still skeptical in many ways of faith healers today that you see on TV or the internet or whatever. But I, I was even skeptical skeptical of these type of of things that the Catholic Church approves of these apparitions and these miracles. But when you really like I said in the beginning of the show, when you really get into them and read them, you can see a stark contrast between these miracles and the ones that you see on TV. I mean, they're they're, they're night and day. Yeah, and I think you know the the other the other thing about Lourdes is this is a place where thousands of people have from all different kinds, all different countries, all different backgrounds have come. And had a similar experience, and like I said earlier, the Lord's Medical Bureau uh, have uh, si- since the 160 years that Subaru dug up that spring, 
70 cures have been verified as inexplicable um, after what is an, an extremely rigorous scientific and medical examination that fails to find any other explanation. Now, you may be able to hire one or two people to fake a yeah. faith healing. Benny Hinn may be able to hire 14 or 15 people to fake a, a, a faith healing on TV. You can't hire thousands of people across 160 years yeah. <laughs> to that that type of, and they're all going to keep their mouth shut. That's what I was about, about to say. Good luck with that. This is fake, and nobody's going to tell on you. And I, I just no, I'm sorry, that's impossible. Let me. Let um, me in fact, what part of the reason we know that Benny Hinn and Jim Jones and all those people hire people is because those people eventually <laughs> gave up the story. Like it's bound to happen. Eventually, they yeah. all come clean. It's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway, I, I got a question for you. So the, the the skeptics may come out and say because Lords over the years have gotten millions upon millions of people making pilgrimage there. You've had a lot of people going there for for healing, right? And right. it seems like the vast majority come away without being miraculously healed from whatever ailment they have. I mean, we only have, uh, since 18, 1858, we only have 70 that are approved by the church, right? So, so, so what would you right. say to people that say, well, if the water was miraculous and everybody would be coming away, so I don't believe it's miraculous at all. How would you, how would you confront somebody with that and say, no, it the the healings are real, but that doesn't mean everybody else or that everybody that goes there is going to get a miraculous healing. I my my response would be that if if it were a situation where you went and everybody was going to receive the same healing property from the water, it wouldn't be miraculous at all. That would be a very natural and scientifically explainable phenomenon because it, you'd be able to test it. You would be able to uh, falsify that with various scientific experiments. And miracles do not work that way. Miracles have never worked. We, a, a miracle is something that is given by God at his own discretion. It is God's action in the world that is totally beyond explanation. And you also can't, you can't scientifically test miraculous things as our lord uh plainly pointed out to uh to satan in the desert you shall not test the lord thy god that does not mean you can't be skeptical you can't ask questions you can't um you can't in an honest pursuit of the truth you know be skeptical and want to know what's really what because as our lord told saint thomas when St. Thomas doubted the resurrection, our Lord didn't say, get thee behind me, Satan. You're supposed to believe every word that comes out of my mouth without question. He didn't do that. He said, come over here, put your finger in my side. Okay. Put your... Because he knows Thomas isn't doubting what he's seeing because he wants to doubt the resurrection. He's doubting what he's seeing because anybody would. Um, anybody in their right mind would, would, things that die don't come back again. That that's kind of a people who lived in ancient times knew that too. So taking it back to our lady of Lords, um, you know, we don't presume to know who God is going to bestow a miracle on or what types of miracles you're going to get. Let me tell you something, Jace, I've been happily married to my wife for, uh, 17 years. Okay. 
I am not a good enough guy to land a woman like her. That's a miracle. <laughs> hey, hey, don't laugh. You know, not everything is, is like I said, not everything is a yeah. burning bush. My contention is that God actually acts in very, sometimes frustratingly ordinary ways. When the Messiah, when the Mashiach comes, when he came to deliver up Israel from bondage, he did not come as what everybody was expecting. He did not ride in on a white steed with an army and drive out and kill all the Romans. And that's what everybody was expecting the Messiah to do. He comes as a baby, not a famous baby. He doesn't even get a room at the end. He's out in a cave on the outskirts of town yeah. with farm animals. That's not what Messiah is supposed to be like, but that's how God interacts in the world. So I, I think people need to, um, uh, when you approach things like miracles, you, you're, you're beyond the realm of what science is going to be able to tell you. Science is wonderful, but science can only tell you what the least of something is, right. the, the least of what it is. It doesn't explain to you... Uh, you know everything that would that would sort well, of. Be I'll my just answer. I'll just add <clears throat> a couple of things to that. Is well, first of all, this idea that you know people will say, "Well, I prayed to God and He didn't answer me." You know, like that Garth Brooks song, "Unanswered Prayers." I actually hate that song because people people t- <laughs> you pe- hate that song. Well, oh, people tend. I don't like the message of the song, like the the rhythm and beat and all that's fine, but I don't like the message because. I think people tend to forget that no is an answer. You know, Paul, uh, St. Paul asked God to remove his um, the issue that he was having, right? He asked him three times and God said no. So people tend to forget that, that no is an answer. And if I ask God for something and I don't get what I want, doesn't mean that God didn't answer my prayer necessarily. It may mean the answer was no, right? So... Jason, I love that. I love that you have theological qualms with Garth Brooks. I think we ought to get him on the show. I'm going to shoot and, him an email. Uh, we let's shoot him an email. Let's get him on the show because we got to straighten this heretic out. I mean, heresy has been discovered and it will not no, stand. No, I mean this right, is okay. this is coming to the top of the list of all the church's issues right now. That's right. That's right. Call an ecumenical council. Oh no. Oh please don't do no, that. No, no, never, never mind. It'll be in Nashville or somewhere. <laughs> the, the, the first Nashville yeah. Ecumenical Council. Oh, so, goodness. Um, <laughs> shoot, that kind of took me off track there. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. No, but look. <laughs> sorry. Anyway. But I was. Uh, I, no, I think, so sorry. I think when, when you're talking about stuff like miracles, you got to you gotta take the. You're not. You can't test. You can. You might be able to run some scientific experiments to determine what that miracle yeah. isn't. But you might. But I don't know that you could ever conduct a, mir- a, a scientific evidence to, to prove that something is miraculous. Well, I don't know. W- I don't. When you look at Lord, you know God. As we read through sacred scripture and even look at at tradition or, or history, right? You'll see that God uses, like you mentioned earlier, He'll use ordinary means to bring about a greater good or even to bring about miraculous events. And is the water at Lord's, in a sense, is it the water at Lord's that cures people? The the answer is no. It's not just the water at Lord's that cures it. Now, God may use, uh, is obviously using the water at Lord's 
to cure some people, but it's the power of God that is that is healing. Because if if you look back in the Old Testament, uh, I can't think of his name. I think it was Nahum who got, who Elisha told him to go. He had okay. So Nahum had leprosy, and Elisha told him, uh, you know. Uh, that God wanted him to dip in the Jordan River seven times and he would be cured of that leprosy. Well, he didn't want to because the Jordan River was known as being a dirty river. He said, well, can I go over here in these cleaner waters? And he's like, no, you need to go here. Well, when he eventually decided to go and dip himself seven times in the Jordan River, he, he came up with this leprosy and it was cured. Now, does that mean that the rivers of uh, or the waters of the river jordan are miraculous in and by themselves no it doesn't but god used that jordan river to to make a point and to show that that he that he can use ordinary means and even means that we may deem or underneath us to to bring about a miraculous event and lords i kind of view like that like god took a like you mentioned earlier uh uh just a small maybe backwater type place to bring out uh um miracles to to bring a message of penance to uh edify and and bring up people's faith and 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 devotion to god and even devotion to our lady is kind of like fatima same thing it's not like he went into a, a major metroplex and did this in front of a lot of people he took the most humble and in the most humble places to 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 do these miracles to do these apparitions you know i just thought of something and i'm <clears throat> i know this is going to seem totally off track but i want I, i'm i think it directly relates to oh, what yeah. you're talking about i was i was thinking about I, i've i've been thought about that story about elijah and uh telling him to, to go into the Jordan river. Um, and if you remember, of course, the Jordan is where our Lord was right. baptized. Okay. And if you think all the different times uh, uh, throughout the entire new Testament, our Lord is referenced in, um, in some ways with one particular old Testament prophet more than any others. And it's Elijah. Remember, they, they, uh, when he's asking them, who, when he's asking the apostles, who do men say that I am? Some say that you're John the Baptist. Others say you're the prophet Elijah. Um, and then, of course, on the on the cross, uh, when he cries out, "Ali, Ali, lama sabachthani," uh, the people on the ground uh, knew what he was saying. He's reciting one of the psalms that is associated with the prophet Elijah. And they said he calls for the prophet yeah. Elijah. So I just thought that was an interesting way. And then Elijah telling the person to, to bathe in the Jordan river. And that's where our Lord was baptized. I thought that was an interesting, uh, I'd never made that. I know that's off topic, but Hey, we get off topic sometimes <laughs> on Treadman. We're working on that. Hey, it's all right. It's all right. Um, we're going to have a whole episode on, on Bible stuff recently because that, uh, that I've wanted to get into for a while because... Oh, uh, yeah. You were supposed to... Uh, send, I, is I, that I what you were going to send me, but you weren't able to because you were, you were quote-unquote, working? <laughs> <laughs> it does happen from time to time. Well... Yeah, I, I, we have all kinds of good uh, ideas for episodes, and hopefully they will come to fruition yeah. more often. But uh, getting back to the to the miracles at Lourdes, um, uh, 
you know, there sometimes uh, miraculous things happen. Most of the time, you will not know that they're miraculous. You will just sort of, they will look very ordinary. Um, but occasionally, uh, you know, like Padre Pio's stigmata, that hap- that was that was documentable in the 1960s, right? Right. We have video. I mean, incredibly modern scientific evidence that these things happen, but they're but they're still beyond explanation. Uh, and so, my my advice would be to, when looking at what what happens in places like Lourdes, come with an open mind and open heart. But if you're looking for, I want the definitive proof that that's what this is, um, you're, that's not, we're not going to be able to accomplish that for you, unfortunately. <laughs> you're, you're, you're dealing with something that is beyond scientific analysis. Um, and I think we need to just accept that. You know, science is wonderful, and it is a great tool for um, understanding the natural world. Uh, but there are aspects of reality and aspects of our existence that are simply not explainable by science. Um, and I'll give you a perfect example. And I've used this example when I've talked to people about miraculous phenomenon. If I were to meet a being from another world, let's say, who did not know anything about human beings, and he asked me, well, how do human beings reproduce? I could explain to it. Well, men inseminate the women, women carry the child and deliver the baby. That's all technically true. That is that is a very scientific, step-by-step analysis of human reproduction. Does that explain what it's like to be a father? Does that wrap up entirely? A, is that a good explanation to somebody who has no idea about the human experience, what it's like to love a woman, to love your children, to, to, to be in a family together? I seem to have left out a lot right. of things, right? Because there's a lot of that experience when you're living in the sacrament of matrimony that you just can't explain with charts and graphs. And that's really what science is. So that's one example right there in your very ordinary everyday life where you can't just break everything down to a scientific, rationalistic explanation and think that you've covered Did you ever see that movie, Goodwill Hunting? So do you yeah. remember where yeah. Matt Damon is talking to Robin Williams? Matt Damon. What's that? Sorry. <laughs> Matt no. Damon. Uh, that's a, I know so, I'm going off topic. Do, do you here. remember Sorry. where he was talking to him? And, you know, if people are unfamiliar, Matt Damon's character is extremely, extremely intelligent. Um, and he gets a lot of his knowledge. He, he, he reads books super fast and he's read, it seems like every book in the library. But Robin Williams makes that same point to him. He goes, you know, you're so smart. You can tell me where this is on the map. How many people were there? Blah, blah, blah. But have you ever, have you ever smelt the air of this place? Have you ever felt the dirt of this place under your feet? And he talks about, well, you, you read about love. You read about this. Do you know what it's like to love a woman? Do you know what it's like to hug her and to lose her basically and all that? And it, 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 what you were saying reminded that that's exactly the conversation they were having. It's like, you can tell the facts of somebody, but that's totally different than living those facts. Have you ever um, have you ever talked to somebody who, in describing, and you've got a, a conversion story, but I was going to say, when you talk to people who have conversion stories, 
and you ask, so what brought you to the Catholic Church? It's never just, oh, well, it's very simple. I read this book, um, and then uh, once I read the book, I understood that the Catholic Church was the true church. And so the very next day, I uh, walked in and uh, said, I'm ready to go. And uh, it's never that. They have to think about it for a long time to find out exactly where to start because there's so many things. And sometimes a lot of it is just I can't explain it. I don't know how to really communicate this this what it what the thing was that brought me to the Catholic Church. Yeah, I read a lot of books and I came across a lot of good apologetic reasons, but I don't think that's why people convert uh, to the Catholic Church. I think those things can be helpful and I think they lead to what ultimately is the thing, but we know that that's the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost converts people. Uh, I had a friend of mine in law school who converted to the Catholic Church, and a lot of people thought, well, Mark converted him because Mark's a Catholic, and now this guy's becoming a Catholic. He's friends with Mark. Mark converted him. And I have to explain to them, Mark can't convert anybody <laughs> to anything. I don't have that kind of, I mean, I'm not that charismatic of a person. Maybe I could maybe I could sell you a Hyundai. I don't think I could get you to baptism. I don't think I don't I whatever that is, I don't have it. Um, so yeah, I think when you look at miracles, you look at things like this, you're you're talking about an act of faith. And I can't I can't get you there. I can't give that to you. That's a gift of the Holy Ghost. And so that's something we always need to you know, pray for. Um, but that, that would be my explanation of people who have doubts about the miracles. I have doubts. Ha doubts are healthy. But doubts in the service of finding the truth, not doubts because if I accept that truth, that's going to make me change my life. Right. And I don't want to do that that's not uh you're not really being scientific about that because you've already chosen the the answer that you want to get and you're not going to accept anything other than whatever suggests that right so, yeah, yeah i don't know no it does because saint paul says he water or, or he planted apollos water but god brings forth the increase so indeed so here, it, here. it's the same thing like you're saying in in our religious lives and our conversions in our in these miracles too as well i mean we can see it we can see it all but um are they necessary are these apparitions necessary are these miracles necessary for our salvation no the church as we said in a previous episode you not believe in these apparitions in them even the church approved ones doesn't have an effect on whether you, you're going to be saved or not you don't have to believe these but right. in my experience, as I opened up myself to look at them, and I didn't open myself up to Fatima or Lords or anything like that. I didn't just open myself up to say, okay, well, I'm Catholic now. I've got to believe them. Still going there with some with, with a healthy bit of skepticism, but keep an open mind to see where the truth leads you. And like I said, once you start making these comparisons about real miracles and real apparitions versus fake ones, there's a stark contrast, and if you come to believe in them and even possibly have devotions to these to these apparitions and to Our Lady, ultimately, I think it just adds more uh, uh, to your spiritual life, to your to your faith in God, because everything Our Lady does points to who points to Christ. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you know, I I I think that if you're somebody who 
you have a you have an affinity for the truth and you are on an honest quest to 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 love the truth because it's the truth you will get to god because jesus said i am the way the truth and the life meaning he is truth incarnate he beyond him there is nothing that is truer than jesus so um, if you love the truth and you're and and you're skeptical, not because you want to be obstinate, but because you want to discern that that which is true from that which is not true, that's okay because that will get you to God. That it it will. But uh, what there is another thing that happens out there, and I'm going to call out my dad here. Uh, my dad is one of these folks who claims he's skeptical, but in reality he just doesn't want to believe. Um, you know, one of the things that he told me one time is we're sitting there having dinner and he goes, you know, the Bible doesn't say you have to go to church every Sunday. And I said, okay, continue. And he goes, it just says to keep, to keep the Lord's day holy. And I said, okay, how do you do that? He said, well, you know, that means, you know, keeping God in mind and trying to live a good life and things like that. And I said, okay, well, where does it say that in the Bible? And then it was, well, you know, just because it's in the Bible, you can't, you can't believe everything that's in the Bible. That book was written, those books were written thousands of years ago. and it, So it went from, you can't do it unless it's in the Bible, to even if it's in the Bible, you can't trust the Bible. And in like a second. And I thought, well, this is not a very rigorous thought process. You're not really doing this because you're interested in finding the truth about what God wants. You just want to disobey the rules and still call yourself a good person. And that's fine. You can do that if you want. Uh, but don't believe for a minute that what you're actually doing is pursuing the truth because you're just deluding yourself. Um, going back to, you know, Our Lady of Lourdes, Bernadette said it was faith and prayer that cured the sick. One must, and she said, and I quote, one must have faith and pray. The water will have no virtue without faith. Christ heals I shouldn't the have, sick. I sat here and, trying to explain yeah, that the, and went on for like five minutes with a bunch of gibberish. And St. Bernadette just explained it in a matter of a sentence or two. <laughs> a lot yeah, sometimes this, yeah, I know. Well, that's, we can't, we can't get her on track. Story then, of my life. Um, well, it, and well, St. Bernadette Subaru is an interesting enough, an interesting enough story. I mean, I meant to say in and of herself because her body, you can go see it to this day. It's in a glass sarcophagus. And it, it, she looks like she's asleep in there. Now she's been dead for what? When did when did Saint Bernadette oh, Subaru die? I got <laughs> it. July. Right here. Let's you, see here. You got it. Yeah. Let me pull. Uh, April a, April sixteenth, eighteen seventy nine. Okay. <laughs> they exhumed her body. Um, in when did they? Uh, they the first exhumation took place in September of 1909 and the presence of representatives that were appointed by the postulators of her cause for canonization, two doctors and a sister of the community. Um, they claimed that although the crucifix in her hand and her rosary had both oxidized, meaning probably were just rust at this point, the body was totally incorrupt, complete, uh, preserved from decomposition entirely. And they said that um, there wasn't even a smell the, of death, right? Right, right. Ten years later, the church exhumed the corpse again, 1919, on the occasion of Bernadette's canonization. Uh, there's a doctor there who examines the body, and he notes, quote, the body is practically mummified, covered with patches of mildew and quite a notable layer of salts, which appear to be calcium deposits. 
The skin has disappeared in some places, but is still present in most parts of the body. Um, three year, uh, in 1925, the church would exhume the body a third time. This time they take relics and that are, that are sent to Rome. Um, and the common practice for relics in France says it was feared that the backlash tinge to the face and sunken eyes and nose would be viewed as corruption by the public. Uh, imprints of the hands are taken uh, for the presentation of the body and the making of a, of a wax cast. The remains are then placed in a gold and crystal reliquary in the chapel of St. Bernadette. And then um, in 1928, uh, the doctor publishes a report on the exhumation of Subaru and the second time. And the, I'm sorry, the second issue of the Bulletin de Association Médicale de Notre-Dame de Lourdes. Um, and he says, and I quote, I would have liked to open the left side of the thorax to take some ribs as relics and then remove the heart, which I am certain must have survived. However, as the trunk was slightly supported on the left arm, it would have been rather difficult to try and get at the heart without doing too much noticeable damage. As the mother superior had expressed a desire for the saint's heart to be kept together with the whole body, and the Monsignor Bishop did not insist, I gave up the idea of opening the left-hand side of the thorax and contented myself with removing the two right ribs, which were more accessible. What struck me during this examination, of course, was the state of perfect preservation of the skeleton, the fibrous tissues of the muscles, still supple and firm, of the ligaments and the skin, and above all, the, total, the totally unexpected state of the liver after 46 years. One would have thought that this organ, which is basically soft and inclined to crumble, would have decomposed very rapidly or would have hardened to a chalky consistency, yet when it was cut, it was soft and almost normal in consistency. I pointed this out to those presents, remarking that this did not seem to be a natural phenomenon, end quote. So, two doctors now that can't seem to explain very much in the presence of this Bernadette Subaru woman. Pretty powerful. Well, and talking about uh, her death, you know, before her death, her last years, she she became uh, a sister in the, the Sisters of, of Charity in Nevers, France. I guess it was Nevers, France. But anyway, they're in Nevers, and... Um, why did she do that? It said that she did that because she wasn't liking the attention that she was getting. So going back to what we said earlier, if she was just doing this for the attention and popularity like some other quote-unquote visionaries or mystics are, are doing, you know, even within uh, the, you know, claiming to be part of the Catholic Church itself, uh, St. Bernadette, is going the opposite direction. She's wanting to get away from the attention and all that because it was never about that for her, you know? Oh, for yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, but we also have it touched on an interesting thing that Our Lady, who finally does reveal her identity on the 16th um, apparition, where uh, well before we before we get the, into that because okay because I, I got a feeling what you're about to say is going to lead us into a pretty good discussion here i i do want to okay. say uh did you did you read anything special about the rosary that um you know that, that i know you i know yeah. you did and i i definitely want you so to so it, it's just brief but yeah so apparently you know, we our rosary is five decades. We pray five rosaries. There's a, there's a rosary out there uh, called the Brigandine Rosary that has six decades. Now, apparently, when she prayed the rosary with Our Lady, 
from from what I was reading, she prayed six decades because the last decade, Our Lady wanted to pray for the poor po- uh, for the poor souls in purgatory. So if you look at the statue of Our Lady of Lords, it was uh, made and commissioned there in the grotto. It has six decades instead of the normal five. And I thought that was just an interesting tidbit. I have never, I had never noticed that before. Um, but that's, that's pretty interesting. So can you, I guess there are Bridgetine rosaries you can purchase that have yeah, six decades? Yeah, I would assume so. Cause I, I never heard of that. Like when I first heard that, I thought it was just something unique maybe to this, to this apparition, but apparently this, uh, I'm going to try to find it here, but this Bridget, uh, um, the six-decade Bridgetine Rosary is, was around even before that. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I did me, not let's know see that. if I can find it here real um, quick. Um, where is it? Yeah, the... Well, see, I, I had seen one called the Bridgetine, but here it's also called the, the Bridge. Well, I guess it's the same thing, just spelled differently. Bridgetine. Instead of Dean, it's Teen on this one. But anyway, it says uh, it's traditional in the... Uh, dis, how do you say this word? I've never known how to say this. Discalced, D-I-S. Disca- Discalced. Yeah, Discalced Carmelite Order. So apparently the uh, Bridgetine Rosary was uh, richly in, in indulgence by Pope Leo the the tenth in fifteen fifteen. By you know, so it apparently it goes, you know, pretty far back. So um, it, it it wasn't necessarily uh, uh, something new. That, that Our Lady presented, but it was something unique to what most people are used to praying when they pray a rosary. And uh, and again, it just goes back, Our Lady's, her message was penance, 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 you know, uh, pray. And as usual, Our, Our Lady's Immaculate Heart carry, uh, cares for uh, church militant on, on earth, and then of course, church suffering in purgatory. And uh, if I could just take a moment, there's a plug, there's a shameless plug that I want to do. And these, these good brothers have not asked me to do this plug, but I think it's important to bringing up Discalced Carmelites. Um, the Discalced Carmelites were a reform order of the Carmelite order fo- uh, founded by St. Teresa of Avila and um, St. John of the Cross in, in southern Spain. Um, dis- the word Discalced literally means without shoes. Um, the, so they were going to live, a, you know, as all religious orders over time accumulate a lot of wealth and a lot of power, they become laxical in, their, in the discipline of their community. And this reform movement was started um, as a way to get back to the original charism of the Carmelites. Anyway, <laughs> there are a group of discalced hermits of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, um, and they are a group of monks that... Uh, uh, I don't remember exactly where they're located, to tell you the truth, but uh, I believe they're in Fairfield, Pennsylvania. These guys, cold water, bare feet, these are monks, and they are currently holding, as they do every Lent, uh, they are preparing for 40 days of mass, prayers, penance, and uh, vigils uh, for people who would like to enroll in the Lenten um, uh, uh, remembrance. So if you want to go to www.edcarm.org, uh, you can get a good look at what their community is all about. And I urge you to get involved in the Lenten enrollment where they will say 40 masses, 40 days of prayer and penance, uh, by the hermits of the monastery. 
Um, and it's a great thing to give to family members. Jace, I know I yeah, signed I your family to, I was up. about to give uh, you a, a, a thank you on the air here. I know I, I sent you a message uh, because I Mark didn't even tell me he was going to do it. All of a sudden, I opened my email, and I, and I see the email saying that there's going to be 40 masses for the Mooney family, and it, it meant a lot. I showed my wife right away. She was appreciative, so um, I, I thank you. And, and there's no cost. There's no cost to, to enroll uh, yourself or, or anyone you want in Lenten enrollment, uh, but I do highly urge you, these monks uh, survive by the grace of, um, of generous uh, Catholics like yourself. So um, this is a community I think you can feel good in, in donating uh, some money to if you're able to, but if not, definitely get involved in Lenten enrollment. That's my shameless plug, and now back to the show. <laughs> well, well, it's a good plug, and I don't think it's the so, shameless one, because like you said, I mean, they're, you have, you, you, as far as I know, you don't, they're not sponsors of the show. They're not, we're not trying to get them no. on the show. We're not, it's just, it's just something good that, 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 that they do. Yes, yeah. there's one group of people that I can absolutely be certain will never listen to this show, and that is the Discalced <laughs> Hermits of Our Lady of Mount Carmel. Um, I don't think they have the technology to listen to podcasts, nor are they particularly interested in doing that, and that's yeah. a good thing. Um, <laughs> now, getting back to St. Bernadette Subaru and her 16th uh, vision, um, which she, she stated went on for over an hour, uh, was the 25th of March, and according to her account, during that visitation, she... Again, asked the woman for her name, but the lady just smiled back. She repeated the question three more times and finally heard the lady say in octation, oxation, I am the immaculate conception. Um, despite being rigorously interviewed by officials of both the Catholic Church and the French government, she sticks consistently to this story. So uh, the Immaculate Conception was only defined as a Catholic dogma to be believed by the whole church maybe about four or five years before this. Yeah. 1854. I doubt very seriously Bernadette Subaru knew what that was. I just, I don't, because you got to remember in pre-Vatican I, or, or even really <laughs> pre-Vatican II, uh, quite frankly, the Pope issuing theological encyclicals was something that was interesting to theology professors, uh, seminarians, priests, bishops. It wasn't like the average Catholic went out, oh, the Pope just released a new encyclical and it's 1858. Well, let me log on to Vatican.va and so I can read the encyclical so I know what people didn't do that in those days, especially didn't care about things like that in rural France. Um, as long as your bishop and your priest had read the encyclical, you were fine with that. So I, the fact that she would bring up the Immaculate Conception um, well, is very yeah, interesting. Yeah, well, it, the, the priest of Lourdes at the time, you know, but, but before she found out who the who the lady was that she had been meeting with, he had asked her for, you know, get her name, and ask her to perform a miracle like to grow some some roses or some type of flowers on a bush in the middle of winter. Um, <clears throat> anyway, yeah. I, I don't believe the miracle ever happened as far as what he was asking. But the when, whenever she, the lady revealed her name as I am the Immaculate Conception, she she told the priest that. And the priest apparently was kind of taken aback by that because... One of the reasons he was taken aback is he was like, 
well, for one, it's Our Lady that you know it's the Virgin Mary that that she's seen. But two, he's thinking, how does she? How would she know to call her the Immaculate Conception? Because, like you said, it 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 was dogmatically defined a few years uh, before, about four years before, but that dissemination of that information wasn't as rapid as today. And Bernadette, by all accounts, wasn't known as being, you know, she was known for being extremely kind and loving and caring, but she learned, but she struggled learning her catechism. She wasn't viewed as being a very smart girl and whatnot. So the priest was taken aback by this. And I don't know if you've read, I actually read it today in, in Ephibelius Deus, the, 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 the document that came out uh, dogmatically defining the Immaculate Conception. But, yes. but you know, yes, he, yes, he yes. goes into um, the history of it, like, like we talked about in episode two about the Assumption when, when, when they dogmatically define that. But he talks about the history of the Immaculate Conception, how far it goes back. But they had a feast of the conception, but it wasn't the feast of the Immaculate Conception. And, you know, it was, it was a truth that was believed for a long time that, that the Virgin Mary was immaculate, immaculately conceived. But, but like you said, the idea that she is the Immaculate Conception wasn't a, necessarily a widely known way to address the Virgin Mary. Yeah, and I and you know in in understanding the Immaculate Conception, it wasn't like the the Pope introduced right. the idea in 1854. He just solemnly declared it a dogma in 1854. This this idea goes back obviously to the Virgin Mary herself. I mean it, that makes sense, and it was something that people had known for a long time, but had never formally um, uh, had defined. Now there's proof of this, um, and the proof is how the other churches who are in schism with the Catholic Church, but we can trace the foundation of those particular churches back to the time of the apostles. So I'm talking about the Orthodox churches, um, the, the Oriental and Eastern Orthodox churches. Now, Eastern, Eastern Orthodoxy never really accepted Augustine's specific ideas on original sin, and so as a consequence, didn't get involved in the later developments that took place in the Roman Catholic Church regarding the Immaculate Conception. But they do believe uh, that um the that the virgin mary never committed a sin in her life and so that whatever that concupiscence is that the rest of us have as a result of being stained with original sin even though baptism cleanses us of a, of the original sin that that stain of concupiscence is still left behind and so that's the thing that gives us our unnatural attraction to evil that the virgin mary did not have that that the, the eastern orthodoxy affirms that now, the Eritrean and the Ethiopian Orthodox churches um, affirm the, doc the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. Now, these are not churches that receive their teachings from the Roman pontiff. So if it were something that Pius IX invented, they would not hold this idea. Um, the, the Oriental Orthodox churches have been in schism with the Catholic Church even before the Eastern Orthodox were. So this is a very, at the time that Bernadette Subaru is 14 years old in the 1850s. This is still a very uh, theological topic, right? It's not like we didn't know that 
Our Lady was sinless throughout her whole life, but this idea of the Immaculate Conception specifically is really only of interest to theologians, academics, priests, bishops, that kind of thing. It's not the average thing a lay person is, oh my gosh, did you just hear what, what Pope Pius IX just dropped? It just wasn't, it wasn't like that in those days. So it's very interesting that that Our Lady communicates that message and that Bernadette Subaru uses it in the right context. Um, in an incredibly correct context. Right. Uh, she doesn't say that, you know, she doesn't go off on the theology of the Immaculate Conception. She says, she says, I am the Immaculate Conception. She probably doesn't even understand exactly, you know, what, what all that entails. Because again, like I said, she was known for struggling with her catechism, with her, you know, with reading and writing. You know, she couldn't read and write. So, so she wasn't like a, I'm starting to think we should have. I'm starting to think she might be a good episode uh, tradman uh, contributor because she we have we have all the same problems that she has. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, and you know, I, of course, we don't mean that in any disrespectful manner to Saint Bernadette. That's just that's no, just the reality. Not. And it, we're we're using it to sure. show that she wasn't crazy and just making all this up because much like the children at Fatima, she was revealing truths and things about the world that really people her age and especially in that day and time wouldn't have known about. Right. Exactly. It wasn't like, uh, you know, you, like I said, you couldn't just pop on to papal encyclicals.com in 1858 and start reading about the immaculate conception. If it wasn't in your, <laughs> I, I, I doubt very seriously that the catechism she had at 14 years old, uh, and that rural part of France even had anything about the Immaculate Conception in it. Catechisms in those days for those types of people were pretty simplistic. The, the, you know, they would run through the the Nicene Creed and the elements of the Nicene Creed, and, that, and what is it we're supposed to believe about these things? And they would get into that, and that was basically your catechism. This this book that I have here was not published until 1983, and it's the Catechism of the Catholic Church. But before that, there were you know, your catechisms were independently published summations of the faith, and they're all geared towards yeah, age-specific Yeah, groups. and I was going to say, you know, these, especially at these age-specific catechisms and, and, and the classes that they were probably going through or, or, you know, lessons and whatnot, it was geared towards what? The, the, the things you're saying uh, about the faith, the basically going over what... They have to believe as Catholics for the most part, right? And up until four years before, you didn't have to believe in the Immaculate Conception. You know, it wasn't dogmatically declared like it is now. Um, where where right. now, when looking at my children's catechisms and stuff, it talks about the Immaculate Conception. I don't know how much it actually talked about it before Pope Pius IX dogmatically declared the Immaculate Conception because, again, they're they were kind of probably uh, straight to the point, like you do with even children today. If you look at a children's catechism and compare it to uh, the, cate the, the catechism of the Catholic Church, there's quite a bit missing between the two. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. Um, and, you know, again, Catholicism can seem like, to an outsider looking in, a religion of of, of dense theological topics that you know very esoteric uh very technical 
I was even talking to my wife one time about the catechism and she goes, you know, I, I don't know why I think this and I don't know where this comes from, but I've always gotten the idea that the catechism is this very dense theological tome that is only for the experts. And maybe it's just the word catechism <laughs> is a Greek word. And so you get the sense that it's all going to be Greek to me, you know? Yeah. Um, but in reality, the catechism is an incredible, the catechism of the Catholic Church, the one that was published in 83 and uh, just republished again quite recently, is an incredibly accessible to the average layperson document. I, I am shocked often at how accessible and, uh, you know, again, how readable it actually is. It's not a dense theological textbook um, at all. It's not a theology textbook, I don't think. I think it's just, it is a summation, a, con a very condensed form of the essentials of the faith, um, the faith that the, we believe the apostles received at Pentecost. Um, so if you haven't dug into the catechism, if you're a little bit afraid of it, uh, if it seems a little bit intimidating, I, I would dig in and you might be surprised. Might be surprised, but anyway, Bernadette Subaru. Uh, going back to the Immaculate Conception, uh, we need to take ADD medication, Jason. <laughs> I think maybe <laughs> we tend to we tend to ramble. Yeah, that's when I'm pretty pretty good at rambling and getting nowhere. <laughs> but anyway, um, I I I thought that she referred referring to herself as the Immaculate Conception. Um, I thought was very interesting, and especially in terms of that. That dogma being very recently defined and its almost universal adherence uh, throughout the apostolic Christian world. I, by, when I say that, I'm talking about uh, the Catholic Church, the Orthodox churches. I call those apostolic churches not not because I don't believe the Catholic Church is the church, but just because those those particular churches can trace their origin back to the time yeah. of the apostles. But anyway. Well, and, and I try to wrap my head around and, and try to think about, okay, she revealed herself as the Immaculate Conception to St. Bernadette. Why, why that and not any of her other names uh, that are associated with the Virgin Mary? And uh, I don't know. I mean, the... There's really no answer. I mean, there's nothing about St. Bernadette that would say, oh, that makes sense why she revealed herself as the Immaculate Conception. You know, uh, I couldn't think of any reason in particular why she would do it outside of the fact that it was just recently dogmatically defined and declared, and you have a, a poor peasant girl who who isn't terribly educated on the subject come back and say that's her name. It, it just kind of maybe, uh, the only thing I could figure out maybe is it was a way to prove that this apparition really did happen and she wasn't just making it up. I, I consider it as, uh, <coughs> as pretty powerful proof. Um, it's definitely something that commanded my attention um, when looking at this just because of, again, the context of it. Um, St. Bernadette Subaru's age and, and level of sophistication. And again, not an insult, just keeping it real, you know, um, it, it was something I think, you know, in today's Catholic church, the immaculate conception is a very big part of our spirituality. Um, it, it, the feast day of the immaculate conception is a holy day of obligation. Okay. Uh, that was not the case in 1858. 
Um, I don't believe it. When did the Feast of the Immaculate Conception actually come I want come to say that it was... Uh, it, Look, when I was reading Pope Pius IX and his uh, declaration, I want to say that it was already a holy day of obligation. It was just known as the Feast of the Conception. But let me, but okay. I might, I might be wrong. Let me look that up real quick. Um, but either way, again, you know, looking at her level of sophistication, and again, you have to take yourself out of the modern catholic experience a little bit because the immaculate conception today in the, today's catholic church is a very big part of catholic spirituality and even that being said so many people don't know what the immaculate conception oh no is. yeah my mother my mother was born and raised in the catholic church she's now a protestant unfortunately uh we've had this conversation several times but she cannot wrap her head around the fact that the immaculate conception yeah. is not jesus they, most people think that the Immaculate Conception refers to the Holy Ghost conceiving the, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, in Mary's womb. That's not what the Immaculate right. Conception is. So the, the very fact that modern people who have access to internets and all these you know, things, that, if they don't understand it, I guarantee you it was not prop, uh, popularly understood very well in 19. Well, I found the answer here, but before I say that, you know, you, you talk about not understanding it. I saw a stupid video a couple years ago on somewhere on the internet, and it was basically talking about when Mary uh, uh, conceived Jesus being the Immaculate Conception, right? And they were they they were anti-Catholic. They right. were kind of doing it in a sacrilegious way, in my opinion, just trying to. Basically, it was an anti-Catholic video. So I made the okay. comment. I was like, I was like, okay, well, if you're going to do that, at least get the facts right, right? So I made the comment. I said, the Immaculate Conception is not about Jesus. It's about the Virgin Mary uh, conception. And you know what their reply was? They just go, okay, nerd. What? <laughs> and I go, and I'm like, well, I'm like, you got it. me. You got me, <laughs> I guess. But anyway, just, just something stupid. I'm yeah. like, look, if you're going to make fun of Catholic dogma, Catholic teachings, at least get the facts right. Yeah, learn, read a book. So, oh my goodness. But, I mean, yeah, that's just a, that to me is is proof of that whatever whatever was happening to St. Bernadette Subaru, it was not a hallucination or a, or a psychotic episode or, or something like that because um, you can't just, you, your brain can only produce what's right. inside of it. And, well, so uh, go, going back to your so. your question earlier, um, you know, I'd also read in in, in Pope Pius the Ninth's decree, he mentioned about how they the it was called the Feast of the Conception was even to be, but by some of his predecessors was even declared and written that it should be held on the same level as far as a holy day as the Feast of the Nativity. So that's how important this was, and it says here that. Um, that according to the papal bull, uh, Commissi Nobis Divinitus, dated December 6, 1708, Pope Clement XI mandated the feast as a holy day of obligation, which is to be celebrated in future years by the faithful. And it was known then as, fe as the Feast of the Conception. So, again, not something that Pope Pius IX just made up and went on with it. The so so it was a it was a holy day of obligation. Yeah, then, yeah, by, yeah. By it, the time it, it, it was. Okay, so, yeah. I was wrong. Interesting. Um, 
Our Lady of Lourdes. Uh, and, and in terms of devotions to Our Lady of Lourdes, one thing I can tell you is that, you know, here in Houston, we have uh, quite a thriving Vietnamese population. <laughs> and let me tell you what, those guys, are com- they have got a devotion to Our Blessed oh, Lady yeah. of Lourdes. Um, and it is, it is very beautiful. We have Vietnamese Catholic Church. Uh, it's, a, it's a Vietnamese Catholic mission right here in the neighborhood. And it's, it's called Our Lady of Lourdes Catholic Church. Um, and that place was packed yesterday. Um, it was packed tonight, actually, because they were having uh, a con- you know, uh, to continue on with this uh, devotion, uh, the celebration of her feast day, not just on the day itself, but I think on the whole, it's a s- several days. You're day talking about day. the one that's um, just basically around the corner from Regina Chaley, right? Like they're near 290? Or, I am. Yeah, 290. Yep. Um, Yep, uh, yep, 290 in Fairbanks. Yeah, Houston, I, yeah, it's, a, it's an all. If anybody's in Houston and you have a chance, visit Our Lady of Lords Parish because they have a life size grotto of it and they also have life size stations of the cross. Yes. I did not know that. I've never, been, I've never been to the grotto or the station of the cross. I pass by the, that church. 20, 30 times a day. Because like I said, it's, it's right here in the neighborhood. It, it, live, it's, so. it's, it's amazing because a, a couple years ago, uh, probably in 2019, it was uh, during, during the Easter season. I believe it might have even been Good Friday. Uh, I went up there with the family to do the Stations of the Cross. It, of course, it was crowded on that day, but it was still a really, really good experience. Yeah, I go there. They have a life-size grotto. They have life-size stations. It's, it's, it's awesome. So I went I went on a, a lawyer's <laughs> retreat a couple of uh, months ago out to this place in Round Top, Texas. And um, it's kind of a, a, an out-in-the-woods type of a deal, and the Texas Criminal Defense Lawyers Association have a, an annual thing where we'll, we'll go there for a, a weekend. And there was a grotto, a, a Lourdes recreation grotto there on the premises. Whoever, whoever owned this property must have been a Catholic because it also had a, a chapel, um, and there were several statues of saints and Our Lady sort of sprinkled around the property. But yeah, I thought it was really cool. I was heading to the dining hall uh, the first morning, and I saw a grotto there, and I, I went over there and said my rosary, and it was a really nice thing. But it just goes to show you the cultural impact that this obscure French village ended up having on the greater Catholic world um, in, in the years to come, such that, like we've been talking about all episode, the two most famous apparitions. Well, I would say there's three big famous apparitions in the Catholic world, in Catholic spirituality today. Um, Our Lady of Lourdes, Our Lady of Fatima, and Our Lady of Guadalupe, to me, are the big three that I think of. Um, But they have such huge cultural impact. And and in terms of Our Lady of Guadalupe, I think that that's a big deal, probably because I'm from North America. I don't know how big Our Lady of Guadalupe is on the other side of the ocean. Is Is it a big thing? in the Catholic world over in Europe? Oh, I have no idea. You know? I have no idea either. I wonder if it's just a thing for the I Western mean, Hemisphere. I mean, we but... may take it for granted um, for, for you know, the popularity. But, yeah, I mean, of course, it's huge here. Um, but, you know, again, Lourdes has crossed the ocean. Uh, it, it's, it's big here as well as in Europe. So um, do you? Yeah. Just a, a, <laughs> Talking about powerful. Marian apparitions... Yeah, I've told you about my a friend of mine. We've talked about him that's super smart. You know, 
he kind of let me know. Do you know what the what the first Marian apparition was? How early uh, it was? I no. I I need no, to look it no. up, but it was like first or second century. <laughs> really? I need to. If I can't That's find it, I'll have to ask him. But I need to look it up. But yeah, it's. Let's see if I could find it here. But yeah, there's. I mean. Let, let, let's see Marian apparitions I'm going I'm going to where the source of all knowledge the internet, uh, the internet. <laughs> <laughs> there'll be no fake news on this podcast all right so let's find out uh, when the first uh, Marian apparition was I, let's see I don't have I don't have any uh, list of Marian apparitions here we go Catholic Church According to the norms of the Catholic Church, uh, okay, that doesn't tell me anything. Associated Marian titles. Yeah, I was going to say, it may be different. I don't know if it's an officially approved one, but there's supposed to have been one that was first or second century. Of course, it might be kind of hard to judge those that long ago. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I don't have... Well, let's see. Our Lady of the Pillar, is that it? uh, yeah, Our Lady of the Pillar. Catholic tradition holds that in the early days of Christianity, the apostles of Jesus spread the gospel through the known world, uh, with James the Greater evangelizing the Roman uh, in Roman Hispania, modern-day Spain. James confronted great difficulties in missionary efforts and faced severe discouragement. In A.D. 40, while he was praying by the banks of the Ebro in uh, Cesar Augusta, in, in modern-day Zaragoza, um, Mary bilocated from Jerusalem where she was living at the time and appeared to James accompanied by thousands of angels to console and encourage him. Our Lady of the Pillar is considered the first Marian apparition. And this is while Our Lady is still in Jerusalem. Uh, she apparently had, it had not been yeah. assumed yet. Although it is unique in this regard because it is the only one to have occurred while Mary was still alive on earth. Yeah, I, th- that might have been it, but I thought there. See, I thought there was another one in the second century. I'll have to do some search on it or ask him which one it was. He may have been talking about that one, but um, again, <laughs> it's just something that the Catholic Church believes in goes back quite a ways, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, very interesting stuff. Very, I, and like I said, I I'm. I'm new to apparitions in terms of actually incorporate. Well, I guess that's not true because, like I said, I've been a big Our Lady of Guadalupe fan since I was a child. So I can't say that I'm new to apparitions or devotions to apparitions. Uh, I don't know why I've always thought of myself as not an apparition guy when I have never not had uh, a painting of Our Lady of Guadalupe in my house. (laughs) So... Yeah, maybe I'm I'm completely out of pocket there. Um, interesting. So but. next question I got for you, which is kind of just for the episode here. So when was the go? I'm trying to find here. When was this officially pr- approved by the church? Let's see. Our Lady of Lords. Getting back on topic here. Oh, um, uh, our, our Lady of Lords uh, is approved in the. It's still it's still the 1860s I thought 1862. There, um, yeah, I, I kind of got out of it looking a couple of these other things up. Let's see. Um, so it was approved by the by the bishop, 
1862, yeah. And then it says 1876, Pius IX officially granted a pontifical decree of canonical coronation to the image of Notre Dame du Santa Rosary. So, I Lady of the Holy Rosary. <clears throat> So, 1862, and then when did the when did the the coronation, the official papal thing? Uh, 1876. Okay, that's pretty. That's that's right after. Um, well, my yeah, my ADD is cool. kicking in here because I I just saw the image here of Our Lady of Lords, the the statue that's in the grotto. Yep. I tried to confirm this, but I couldn't find any writings. And maybe you did. I couldn't find any of the writings where St. Bernadette actually said this. So take it with a grain of salt. But but I was reading somewhere that after the statue was made, that St. Bernadette was actually disappointed in the statue because, yeah, because it was it's completely different than what she saw and what she described. Cause like we said earlier, or, you know, we said earlier in the episode here that she described a, a lady no taller than her. And she was, it was either four foot seven or four foot 11, not very tall. Um, was a young lady, maybe of 12. And, uh, you look at the statue here. It's, it's a pretty traditional statue of the Virgin Mary, tall, elegant looking, you know, um, a, a grown woman. Um, so, it's a little bit different than what St. Bernadette uh, described. And I tried to find anywhere that she might have wrote that in any of her writings or anything, but I but I never found it. So with that said, take it with a grain of salt. I don't know if it's uh, factual or not. No, I, I've heard that. I've heard that too. Um, and it seems like the kind of thing that is probably true because – I think you would be disappointed. I think the I think a statue, any statue of Our Lady, is going to pale in comparison to seeing the real thing. You see the real Virgin Mary, when 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 the second coming happens, and and I I hope that we all make it um, uh, to the to the the uh, the beatific vision. Mm. Nothing is going to compare to that. You're going to see when when Christ comes again. And we see that, and we will be there for the second coming, no, no question. But when we see that, we're going to look at every statue that ever existed, every icon that ever existed of our Lord, and we're going to go, wow, that, those were poor representations. To, I mean, and we've seen some beautiful statues and some beautiful icons of our Lord, and they're all going to fail to capture oh, the yeah. real thing. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, um, so... Sp- sp- Seems like the kind of story that to me is probably getting true. getting off topic here, but if you don't mind sharing, if it's something that you can share, you remember the story you were telling last night about the icon you saw in in Russia. Yes. I thought that was a fascinating story, and I think one that if if you want to share it, so, so something that oh, our listeners yeah, no, would I'd love, love to share. It. Mark, after our meeting last night, we were talking to uh, one of our members in the council there. And uh, Mark was telling this story about it. Anyway, I'll let you take it away. But it was it was fascinating. So uh, I went, many of you know I went to college at Loyola University in Chicago, um, which is today a bastion of heretical and heterodox teachings. Um, but uh, the good news is the student body is surprisingly, particularly in the theology department, pretty orthodox. Um, 
But anywho, that's a story for another time. I'm at Loyola. I take an art appreciation class as an elective. And I thought it, that it would be a cool thing to do to go and see some Russian icons. If you know anything about Chicago, it has got an, an amazing Eastern European uh, culture there from all over, from Poland especially, obviously, but also uh, Ukraine, Russia, all over the, the, the Eastern Slavic nations. Um, there is a Russian Orthodox church in the Ukrainian village area. And I thought, well, they've probably got some beautiful icons there. So I'm going to go take a look. And I go in, the church is open and I start looking around and the priest, of course, comes up to me because I'm alone in the church and he wants to know me. Very nice guy, introduces himself and we shake hands. And he says, so what are you doing here? I said, well, I wanted to look at your icons because um, I'm taking this art appreciation class and I'm supposed to write a report on them. He says, okay, well, uh, feel free to uh, look around the church. Obviously, please stay away from the iconostasis, which is the gate that separates the uh, where the tabernacle and altar are from where the, the rest of the the people sit. And I said, yes, of course, I'm not going to violate the uh, the sacred space here at all. I'm a Catholic, so I, I get it. Um, and he's like, oh, okay, you're Catholic. You get it. Good for you. You know, you're an know, Orthodox priest anyway. <laughs> he, he, was, he was not inclined to be, oh, yeah, no, we're definitely the same thing. Anyway, um, so he kind of walks away. Comes back about 15 minutes later and he says, if you, do you really want to see some icons? Because I can show you some icons. And I said, I would love to see some icons. He says, okay, you come with me. We go down into the basement of the church. And in the basement, there are just, there had to have been four or 500 icons stacked in there that were, I mean, there was enough room to sort of walk uh, in a pathway through this, this collection of icons. These icons had been smuggled out of the Soviet Union. Some of them very early on in the Soviet, in the days of the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 30s during the worst of Stalin's persecutions. Some of them, he had told me, had been repatriated to Russia, but not all of them and not his most important ones. If you don't know anything about the Russian Orthodox Church, there is a Russian Orthodox Church, and then there's the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, which doesn't trust the Russian Orthodox Church that's in Russia. Okay. Um, schisms abound. But anyway... So he showed me some icons. Some of these icons had to have been five, six, seven hundred years old. They, um, some of them had been in use so long, the incense smoke had, the soot that had collected on these icons, you couldn't even see Jesus's face in some of them. It was an incredibly profound, uh, incredible, incredible moment for me to be able to see these things. And he says, you know, we don't show everybody this because we don't want a lot of people to know that these icons are here. So, and I, and I asked him, I said, can I, can I write about these icons? He said, you can write about the icons and you can write about, you know, that they're here or whatever, I guess. And not like we're paranoid about it, but, um, there are a couple of icons, which I would prefer if you don't tell people are here. And I said, absolutely. I'll, you know, I'll complete discretion. But anywho, uh, it was a very amazing experience. I don't know, you know, what the situation with those icons is now or anything, but um, having having a great devotion to icons and the Eastern Church spirituality, and I know our Orthodox brethren are not Catholic, and I know that they're separated, but um, I believe that they will come back. Um, 
before it's all over. I believe that Christ will heal all schisms. And they are our brothers in Christ. They're in schism, but they're still our brothers in Christ. And I think, um, I don't know. That's that's the end of the story. But No, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. uh, if you ever get a chance to go to... If you're in if you're in the Chicago area, there is a big Ukrainian Catholic church. Which because they're Ukrainian Catholics, you can go there and you can actually receive communion um, uh, validly, illicitly, of course. And that church is incredible. I mean, it's covered wall to wall in icons, um, and they have divine liturgy every Sunday, and it's just a beautiful thing. There's a lot of great Eastern spirituality in the Chicago area. So, but. Uh... That's my story. No, no. It's, <laughs> like I said, when because because at our night, you know, at our nice meeting, we have a great lecturer. He's he, that's the best part of the meeting, hands down. So he he, I agree. I agree he, completely. He, he, he's done series on a bunch of different series. I guess now he's working on the different rites within the Catholic Church. And last night we talked about the second biggest uh, group of of Catholics, which are the Ukrainian. Uh, uh, What's it called? Ukrainian business. The Ukrainian Greek Ukrainian Catholic Greek Church, Catholic yeah. Church. And um, so anyway, we we had a pretty good 10, 15 minute lecture on that. But anyway, uh, yeah, Jason. Now you went you went to uh, Ruthenian Divine Liturgy two mm-hmm. weeks ago, and actually last Sunday I went to the Melkite Divine Liturgy, which is also at Saint yeah. John Chrysostom here in Houston. Um, so you, you have a, a, a devotion to the Eastern, um, Christian devotions as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, <clears throat> I do. And that had been my second time to, uh, St. John Chrysostom to their, to the, uh, to the liturgy there this year. I actually want to make an effort to go to all the different Eastern rites in Houston. Um, you know, you've got the Melkites at, at noon, by the way, they were at our, they were at Regina Chaley last week selling those uh, those uh, hand carved statues. Yes. I bought one of the the crosses last year that had some of the, the you know flowers and rocks and stuff from the from the Holy Land. But um, anyway, it, 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 I wish I had more money. I, I mean, uh, be, be, because some, <laughs> Me some of those icons and some of the carvings are out of olive wood from from Bethlehem. Uh, I mean, I mean they're just they're, they're gorgeous and. Um, I know some people say, "Oh, but these are really expensive." Well, I understand why they're expensive for a couple of reasons, right? They're they're works of art. They're they're really gorgeous, but also when you buy them, it's not just they're not just selling it as a business for you to buy. It's to help support because because they the Saint Bar- I think Saint Barbara Mission here in Houston. They're trying to build their own church, and then on top of it, they send some of that money back to help refugees and stuff in the uh, where is it Lebanon, I believe. Yeah, yeah, Catholic families in the in, right. in the Middle East and right. So, in the Holy so Land. it maybe it being a little pricey. I, I understand why it is. I just I don't necessarily have the money to to purchase all that. And uh, they're real good about if you if you were able to working with you on it. But anyway, I, I digress. But yeah, I mean, we got the, we got them. We have the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, which I want to attend. You have we do. The, uh, Mar- is it Maronite Church here? You have the. There's a Maronite uh, Church. There what's is, the yeah. What's the one out of India? Um, the Sir Malabar. Malabar. You have Catholic them Church. here in Houston, and so anyway, 
um, back to your question, I, I, I do, and I've been trying to learn more about the Eastern spirituality because it is somewhat different, right, than 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 the Latin rite. Um, not in bad ways, in good ways. It's just, it's just another way I feel to open up you, you, yourself to to your devotions to God, okay. stuff like that. I just. I just found out something, and I'm excited. I did not know that there was a Catholic there, there was a Catholic Assyrian church in Katy. I didn't come across uh, that one the other day. And, and the Assyrian Catholics, they say that their their divine liturgy is in um, Assyrian and Aramaic. Well, I thought the Melkites were in uh, uh, oh Aramaic. I was, I was the Melkites are in Arabic, right? Right, the Melkites are in Arabic. Yeah, um, the Assyrian Church uh, is in. Like I said, that's in uh, uh, Arabic, Aramaic, and and Assyriac, which is a very old, uh, old rite. So that, that that goes back probably to the first or second century uh, in the Middle East. I like the Eastern spirituality stuff because I mean, Christ was Christ was a Middle Eastern man. Uh, he lived in the Middle East, and he. Uh, so when I when I see those those ancient rites. It's like witnessing the ver- the early Christian church, and I'm not saying we don't get that in the Roman church, but I'm just saying it. It's like it's like being in Jerusalem in 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 the first century and and witnessing the apostles that they would have said a rite of mass similar to that. Um, I I don't know. It, it I'm, I just and get transported. I think I, I think that, it's so. great how how you can also see the cultural differences, right? Because you, you have the Roman rite, which has the traditional Latin mass. It has the, today it has a Novus Ordo. And then you have your Eastern churches, which have divine liturgy. The liturgy of St. John Chrysostom uh, is the liturgy of, uh, who's, is it St. Thomas? No, not St. Thomas. Uh, anyway, you, uh, which, which uh, rite? Uh, the, the Syria, uh, uh, Oh yeah, yeah that's St. Thomas. Thomas. Yeah, so so you have them, and anyway, you see all you, they all you know we all believe the same thing we and everything, but we just express the through the liturgy just in different cultural ways, right? Uh, that have that have organically Definitely. developed through time. And going back to what we've talked about before, it's not it's not that as traditional Catholics, at least for me, and I, and I think it's safe to say for you, we don't believe that the traditional Latin mass is the only mass that is valid or that is, you know, that is worthy to go to. Um, because Absolutely. we've both visited these Eastern uh, divine liturgies and, and love them. I mean, I, I took a picture with my family at St. John Christen because they're, their icons and their and, and and everything are just are just gorgeous that, that you know along the wall. Well, to to discount to discount the other liturgies of the church is to cease to be a traditional Catholic. I mean, to be if we're really going to be traditional Catholics, the tradition of the church is that the church has a variety of uh, uh, liturgical expressions. But that what makes a liturgical expression valid is not what language it's in or what direction you face. It is, has this liturgy developed organically under the auspices of the church through the guidance of the Holy Ghost? That's what makes our liturgies so, um, we can't, we call it the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom because it's the liturgy that St. John Chrysostom used. 
St. John Chrysostom did not sit down and write the liturgy in, in, a, in a committee and you know, get it approved by the sacred congregation for divine worship and sacraments. That's not how, that's not how it worked until 1965. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, what, what surprised me so much about the Novus Ordo Misa is that it was entirely assembled by a committee, which I've never seen any liturgy ever done that way before. We'd never done that before. But anyway, well, I'm getting off topic again. I'm a like, funny, <laughs> a, a funny story again about my son, my seven-year-old son. He's my my oldest boy, seven. <clears throat> he uh, so la- last time we went to Saint John Chrysostom, we went to Divine Liturgy. There, he, he wasn't receiving communion yet. So this time we went, okay. and for people that may be unfamiliar, uh, at the Byzantine liturgy. When you when you go receive Holy Communion, it's in a they have leavened bread in a cup of wine that they, or or maybe I should use the correct time. They have the body of Jesus in the blood in the chalice, and they and they uh, right. scoop it with the spoon and they put it in your mouth. So again, there's there's no touching right. or anything like that. And they hold a they hold like I don't towel is not the right word. What, what would you what's it called underneath? Well, to, to catch any spillage. That may occur. The uh, well, in the Roman Church, we would call it a pattern. Yeah, but theirs is a cloth. Or, I mean, uh, a, uh, uh, is it the no? So the pattern is the is the the oh goodness, what is that? What is that liturgical? Um, oh, that's going to drive me nuts. It's not. It's not a pattern. It's not a pall. It's the uh, oh goodness. See, this is this is this is. I hate when you well, do this, Jason. Believe I me, I wish it. I didn't do it. Um, <laughs> but anyway, to, to, to get on with the story here, so <clears throat> I receive, and my son receives right behind me. Well, I turn around and wait for him to come to me so we can go back to our seats. And he looks at me and he goes, <laughs> he said, he said, Dad, that tasted, or, or no, no, he didn't say it like that. He said, Dad, that taste is nasty. <laughs> and and wow. so... I think you're. I, I think your kid's possessed. I think so. No I told him, you know, again, it was another <laughs> moment after church, where or, or I shouldn't say church after divine liturgy. I talked to him. I said, okay, remember what you're receiving is what and he goes. It's the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, right? And I said, yes. I mean, he didn't do like that. I said, what he actually said was, I said, what did you, re- uh, what are you actually receiving? What is it? And he goes, the body and blood. And I said, correct. And uh, I said, but it's under the forms of what? Of bread and wine. So what you see, what you taste, what you smell and everything, all your senses will, will, will taste wine, will taste bread and all that. But I said, but what it really is, is Jesus's body and blood, like you said. So I said, what you were tasting was the wine. I said, that's why you weren't used to the, to the taste. <laughs> but he comes up to me, he's like, Dad, that taste is nasty. Or disgusting or something like that. I just remember he said tastes. It was disgusting, nasty, or something like that. But, you know, it was the wine. I mean, the seven-year-old never had wine before, so. <laughs> well, see, see, I'm I'm Irish. I loved the wine the very first time I tasted it. See, I, I grew up in the Nova Sordo Church where everybody drank from the, the yeah. same chalice. Uh, and I'll tell you what, if there's one good thing that coronavirus did, it's end that practice. Um, oh, I, would anywho, never, I wouldn't. I would never uh, let cor- my son touch the chalice, even if he he had that option, because he's butterfinger. Yeah. He drops everything. Oh no! 
the corporal, the corporal is what that, uh, that uh, the, there's two, there's two um, of these cloth, linen cloth thing. There's the purificator and then there is the corporal. The corporal is the, uh, uh, the, the little, uh, it, it's a, it, well, that's what the actual body of Christ rests upon. And then the purificator is the linen cloth that drapes over the chalice. Um, so that's that, that was going to drive me nuts. But anywho, um, all right, we're at two hours, and we we we're, we appear to be done talking yeah. about Our Lady of Lords. But um, I I would definitely encourage all of us to foster devotion to Our Lady um, of Lords and and the Holy Rosary. And I tell you what, this thing is so important to your spiritual life. So. That being said, um, Blessed Virgin Mary of, of, of Lourdes, pray for us. Um, and I know we don't usually close with a prayer, but I'd kind of like to this time just because of the, the topic that we've been talking about. And um, I'd like to say the Memorare prayer, which is uh, one of my favorite prayers, the Blessed Virgin. And so, again, if you're listening, feel free to join along with us, and uh, we're going to let this take us out. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired with this confidence, we fly unto thee, O Virgin of Virgins, our Mother. To thee do we come, before thee we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer us. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thanks, everybody, for joining us, and... Uh, I think we're going to have another episode next week, Jason. If you're, if you've got oh, the yeah. time for yeah. that, yeah, we're going to try to get something out uh, more frequently than we than we did last year. So I'm excited. And and stay tuned because we do have some some big things in the works. Some guests are going to be coming on the show to talk about uh, some interesting topics. We'll have a little bit more to say about that. Or do you want to talk no, about we that? We can talk now? about it later once we get. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it a little bit later because we're two <laughs> hours into it. So. <laughs> but stay tuned. Some exciting things are coming up on Tradmen, and uh, we really appreciate you guys joining us. And hope Mark, I, I just I, I did want to say something to you on the podcast here, something that I have to uh, admit to you and our viewers. So okay, I have become to believe, and I know this is going to kind of go against Catholics or anti-science or whatnot, but I have come to believe in the flat earth. Do you want to know? Do you want to know why? Oh, good. Well, the right. Earth is made of seventy percent water, right? None of it's carbonated, right. so the Earth is flat. <laughs> hang on, hang on. Um, so stupid. Let's. No, no, no! I loved it. Do it again. Say. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I, I want to. I want to incorporate my little. My little. See, you got to warn. You got to warn me when you're going to set me up for that because I have a snare drum here that I use just for oh, that. Well, I wanted to try to take you by surprise there. I was trying to trying to add a little uh, bump, bump, bump to it. Yeah, there you go. Oh, <laughs> uh, so so the reason that you believe in the flat Earth. Is because seventy percent of the Earth is covered with water, and yep, none of it is carbon. Flat. Correct. <laughs> okay. That's so, all. <laughs> all right. Um, Jason will not be allowed on the show anymore, so uh, I'll be seeing you all next Trad week. Man. And, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
Trad. What <laughs> <laughs> the trad men are yeah. in schism? I oh, I just no. ipso facto oh, no. excommunicated myself from the show. We need you know you know what you know what the cure for schism is though. What's Chase? that? Syn- synodality upon synods. Yeah, synods, synodality. Yep. That's the cure. Oh <laughs> all right. Well, all right, team. We will see you guys next week. God bless you all, and uh, God bless thanks for everyone. Joining Thank us. you.